Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. Now some of you might know who I am, but others will have absolutely no idea. So I'm Ed Foster and I'm back at the helm of these recordings. Joining me today is Features Editor Simon Aaron. Good afternoon. And our special guest Adrian Newey. Hello. So new Formula One fans could be mistaken for thinking that Adrian's career started and ended at Red Bull, but the truth is very far from that. He worked at Fittipaldi, Beatrice, March, designing sports cars and Indy cars, then returned to the Formula One paddock, uh, the March, Leighton House, and then Williams, McLaren, and then finally Red Bull. And, and in that time, you won 10 championships between 92 and 2013, an astonishing record. Um, to give it a little bit of background as to why we're here, uh, there is a special dinner in your honor tonight um, after winning Motoring Book of the Year last year with your How to Build a Car. Um, I've read it, and I have to say, I blame you entirely for uh, the burn I got on my back reading it on a beach. And I, it was the one book I took on holiday, um, and I finished it in a day. <laughs> so there was a lot of sitting that around. Was, that was quick reading. <laughs> yeah. It took me a lot longer um, to write it. No, I can imagine. I was, but why, why a book now? What was it that kind of brought this on? Uh, that's a very good question. Over the years, I was approached by various publishers to, to write a book. Um, and it never really felt right. Now, to be perfectly honest, I was, I was going to leave it until after I'd retired before I did so. And then uh, Jack Fogg from HarperCollins approached me with an idea to kind of tell the story of how I went about the design of 12 or so cars that I've been involved in. And I thought, well, okay, that's quite a nice idea. But if I'm going to do that, I might as well make it an autobiography and tell the whole thing because I'm never going to to write, get around to writing two books. And uh, that, was, that, was, that was it, got into it. And do you, was there, there must have been a huge amount of satisfaction when you, when you kind of got that done. And was the, was the process quite difficult? Because obviously as an engineer, you're, you haven't written that many books in your life. Um, how was the process? And, uh, and that sort of sense of completion at the end must have been quite nice. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's, um, I think uh, Jack was very optimistic in telling me how long it would take me. Um, <laughs> uh, but and I'm not one who normally spends a lot of time sort of looking back and reflecting and kind of tend to live in the, uh, in the present and future. Um, so writing the book was kind of, I think it's, it's an old thing, but quite cathartic. It was quite nice to look back and Remember, try and remember everything, which is my first problem. My memory is absolutely awful, so I thought <laughs> it might be a very short book. Um, but once I started, then it all started to come back. Um, worked uh, very closely with a ghostwriter who he was absolutely excellent to, to work with, and it was actually a really pleasurable experience. So, what's actually more difficult, crafting a book or designing a Red Bull RB7? <laughs> very different, and that's, I guess. As I've got older, that's what I now enjoy, is actually being involved in different things. Um, an example, my 
daughters uh, in the hotel industry now, and so I've also been involved with some of the hotels she's been working in developing from derelict buildings into running concerns and you know that sort of variety i think it is is quite exciting for me can you can you build a hotel with more downforce than another hotel i don't, I don't, I don't know how, how does that work <laughs> try to build it with more style it doesn't always work um so today we're, we're going to sort of meander through lots of the bits and pieces that you brought up in the book um and some of them are, are well known some of them are lesser known um but before we went anywhere there's I'd, I read that the New Yorker referred to you as the Michelangelo of motorsport, um, which I thought was quite a nice phrase. So just to kind of to tee us off, what do you consider to be your Sistine Chapel um, you know, through, throughout your career? Uh, crikey, that's a difficult one. I think probably the car in many ways I'm most proud of, although I never won a race, was the, the first Leighton House March car. Um, that was 1988. It was my first Formula One car. And I think, well, at the time, it was the back end of the turbo era, and cars had kind of got very big and clumsy with ever more powerful engines and ever bigger rear wings to, to then create the downforce. Um, we only had a normally aspirated engine, which was probably best part of 200 horsepower down. Um, so I figured that if we were going to be competitive, the only way to do it would be to come up with a, a much more aerodynamically efficient package. So we went for a a very small car, very tightly packaged, um, and really emphasising trying to maximise the downforce. And it kind of I th it changed the direction of Formula One a little bit, in as much as subsequently people either directly copied, well, close to directly copied, or or at least made their cars quite a lot smaller and more aerodynamic. And it, it raised the profile of aerodynamics within Formula One, I would say. It was sorry, Simon. It was so tightly packaged that you didn't have space for the driver's knuckles, did you? <laughs> no, there were there were there were a few little mistakes in it. Um, actually, the the uh, the first so our lead driver is even Ivan Capelli, um, who had done one season of Formula One at that time. Um, lovely chap, Italian, very enthusiastic, and so we kind of built a rough mock-up of the car and sat him in it, um, cockpit mock-up, and he said yes, and we sort of brought the pedals towards him and tried different pieces and said, yes, I'm okay with that. And then when he actually drove it, suddenly he wasn't okay with it. I think his enthusiasm got the better of him a bit, and it was my mistake. It was I, I should have, with hindsight, been a bit more, less pushy in trying to package him as tightly. But we got to the first test in Imola, um, and he quite simply couldn't change gear. He hadn't got enough room for the gear lever. So... Um, the evening of that first test, I think I slightly shocked the mechanics by saying, OK, leave me to it. You go off to, to the hotel rooms. And I worked through the night, cut a hole in the monocoque, made a, um, a wax moulding of the blister shape, uh, took a mould of that, and then, and then made the, the blister, laminated it up and, and put, bonded that back into the chassis. And so the mechanics came back in in the morning. All they had to do was paint it green. Um, <laughs> Which, which was good in a way because it kind of helped to establish that I could be involved with them and could understand their side of this as well. I was just, a slight tangent, but um, I was just going to... Sound like you, Simon. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> um, just on the, on the subject of Capelli, he was a Formula 3 champion. He won the Formula 3000 title with a tiny little team run from Cesare Garibaldi's backyard, more or less, and half a dozen mechanics, if that. Um, very talented guy, but... And he showed that 
a couple of seasons with with you and then it just all kind of went pear shaped when he went to Ferrari what I mean how did you rate him and where do you think it went wrong I mean well he's a lovely he's a lovely chap in terms of his driving abilities you say I mean he, through the junior film was he was sensational and he seemed he when he was with us in those years at Layson House he was to me a, a very very good driver um Difficult to judge, of course, had had we had another driver in the car, where he would have been, because as you say, it was very strange that only went to Ferrari and and subsequently Jordan, and really did absolutely nothing. Um, some drivers are quite affected by their confidence in the team around them and and how much support they feel, etc. Um, emotional drivers, if you like, and I think Ivan was one of those. And so when he kind of, if you like, didn't get the love at Ferrari and perhaps, I guess, that lost his confidence. And then he went to Jordan where I'm sure he would have got the love from EJ. He still wasn't able to get back to form. Now, we've got so much to talk about, but to start things, I wanted to rewind to 83, the Daytona 24 hours. Um, and it's a lovely part of the book uh, where you, you talk to the drivers um, that you had that year. Randy Lehner, who was excellent. Uh, Terry Walters, who had thick Benny Hill glasses and couldn't see at night. Uh, Marty Hines, who, was, who had permanently dilated pupils. And Ken Murray, who could barely change gear. Um, <laughs> this was obviously with the, with the 83G, the march. Um, just talk, because you shook it down at Donington with Tiff very briefly. Um, so just talk us through you know, that, that, that weekend and, and what you had to go through. Uh, it was, it was um, I guess it was the weekend in some ways that launched my career or brought me to the attention certainly of Robin Hurd who was the, the boss of um, March at the time where uh, there'd been a, an unloved sports car that had raced at Le Mans in 82 and was kind of lying around. Um, I had done my final year project at Southampton University on ground effect aerodynamics applied to sports cars. So I said to Robin, look, what's happening to this car? I, maybe I can do something with it. And he said, OK, well, you can have a go, but there's no budget for wind tunnel testing. You'll have to do it by eye. So, OK. So anyway, I did various aerodynamic modifications to it and a bit of design work to get quite a lot of weight out of it as well. And as you say, we, we took it up to Donington with Tiffany Dahl, um, did a shakedown lap of about probably 20 laps, if that. And then it's packed off to go to Daytona. Um, so not the best preparation for a 24-hour race. Anyway, um, we arrived, uh, ran the car. Um, Ken Murray, the, the owner of the car. Uh, this was the one who couldn't change gear. Yeah, so he, he had a Ferrari <laughs> Testarossa road car and fancied himself as a racing driver. And somehow or other, he'd managed to get an entry at Daytona. God knows how. So yes, he couldn't drive the car, he couldn't change gear. So I managed to persuade him that, you know, maybe it was best to develop his talents a little bit before racing at Daytona. So <laughs> managed to talk him out of driving the car um, and effectively became, as well as the supplied race engineer by March, the, the, the um, team manager, because there was no team manager. The car was pretty unreliable. We had lots of problems with it through practice. Um, qualified very much midfield. It was all a bit, bit disappointing. And then kind of each each day or at the end of the day the job got longer rather than shorter as we went through um so i was kind of hands-on with the mechanics trying to help so we were up all night the night before qualifying and the night before the race so going into the race i think we we're 
probably had about, I don't know, six hours sleep in the previous 48 and figured it wouldn't really be a problem because the thing would probably break down after two hours and we could <laughs> all go back to the hotel room. Anyway, um, I mean, it's unbelievable by today's standards, but in those days there was no kind of timing screen um, showing where your positions and so forth on the pit wall. So we had a, a group of girls who would do the lap charts to sh show where you were. Um, only the girls that had been supplied weren't quite up to us and got <laughs> lost after about an hour. So we kept running and I, I just tried to keep um, Randy in the car as, as much as possible. Um, uh, Randy and Marty really. Um, tried to rev limited them because we were very worried about the reliability of the, the engine. And just kept going round, really. And um, I remember actually, as its darkness fell, we were doing a, a driver change. Um, I can't remember who was the tall or, what, or who was the short one. One of them was quite short. I think it was Randy. Um, so, as as he got out, I did help with the seat belts and so forth. So I took his seat padding, which is a sort of round frisbee chucked it and it did exactly that it frisbeed off <laughs> over the top of the pit over the top of the garage and landed on the top of the garage roof so once the pit stop was all over i then had to clamber up in the middle of the night find the said piece of frisbee padding recover it and get it ready for the next stop um anyway the, the race went on and about i think it's probably about 11 o'clock at night i'm not honestly sure i went off to the to the um the lavatory and uh as you walk in, I looked up and just like Indianapolis, there's a sort of vertical tower scoreboard and there P1 was car 66. Didn't really think of it, anything of it. I was kind of standing at the urinal thinking, 66, I, I know that. Shit, that's us. <laughs> <laughs> and we were leading and um, we actually stayed in the lead from, I guess that's probably about sixth hour or so, through to two hours from the end when there's a a heavy rainstorm they actually red flagged the race um and then got going again but we got a misfire from watering the ignition and finished second um and on the back of that uh robin heard managed to sell a whole load more of the 83 g's um and that kind of i guess brought my name to the attention of march as not simply being a junior draftsman an occasional race engineer on the formula two car to somebody that he should put a bit of trust in. So talking of Formula 2, when, didn't uh, Christian Danner actually sack you as his race engineer at one point <laughs> in the early 80s? After my very first race. It's <laughs> <laughs> always yes. great to bring you up the best memories. Yeah, no, my, my, he mentioned uh, Formula 2. Yeah. No, my, my race engineering career was um, nearly cut very short at the grand total of one race. <laughs> well, well, what was that? How did, I mean, what, what were the circumstances? Um, the circumstances were that... Um, I, well, first of all, I joined uh, March from Fittipaldi. I had, Fittipaldi as a team, it's clear they're losing their money and it was time to move on before they folded. So I was astute enough to do so um, and had two job, job offers, one from Lotus as an aerodynamicist and one from March as a race engineer at the weekends and a junior draftsman during the week. Um, kind of the the obvious thing would, would have been to go to Lotus as an aerodynamicist and kind of since the Lotus was always the team that 
my parents and myself had kind of supported, if you like, when I was younger. But I thought, no, I've, I've now done 18 months as an aerodynamicist at Fittipaldi. If I go to March, I can start to get experience in the other two disciplines of race engineering and, and um, mechanical design. So I did that. And what I hadn't banked on was that I guess almost no experience of race engineering before the first race. I think I wore a set of headphones once for a test at Thruxton or somewhere, I can't honestly remember. And then it was straight into the first race. So I was incredibly wet behind the ears. Um, we got through the, it was a very wet weekend. And in the race, about five, three laps or so from the end with, I think Christian might've even been leading, um, the car conked out, no fuel. So I was immediately blamed of having not put enough fuel in the car. Um, Christian, understandably enough, lost his cool and said, I don't want this wet young engineer working on my car anymore. Um, as it turned out, it was actually a fuel leak that caused <laughs> him to run out. But unfortunately, by then, the damage was done. And, you know, to be in a way, I don't blame Christian. His career was obviously on the line. Um, or, you know, he was, he was desperately trying to develop his career. The last thing he wanted was some inexperienced race engineer. Uh, what was remarkable is that it was a three-car team and Johnny Scotto, who was one of the other drivers, said, OK, I'll, I'll take Adrian. And so um, Johnny's race engineer, Ralph Bellamy, went on to Christian's car and I went on to Johnny's. And we had a, a great relationship through the year. Um, a lovely, lovely person, Venezuelan. And we ended up um, taking it down to the and finishing second in the championship. Talking of relationships with, with drivers, is it true to say that the sort of the first close relationship you had was with Bobby Rahal in, in 83? Um, how was it, what was different about him, you know, back in 83? And then uh, we can go on to talk about the, sort of the, the Jaguar thing afterwards, but um, he was a very special driver. Um, what would you like to work with? Well, it was actually 84, but... Um, Sorry. No, no, don't worry. So, <laughs> so It was actually Simon who did these notes. So, so. <laughs> Sloping shoulders. Um, no, so I did my race engineering with Johnny in 82 and started to learn the ropes a bit. Uh, a bit of race engineering... Well, that Daytona race wasn't race engineering, that was survival. Um, but then with Al Holbert in, in the sports car towards the start, once he, he bought the March 83G did a couple of races with him but still a fairly inexperienced race engineer in truth um, anyway Robin heard as sort of part of his earned money from the Americans um, had this policy of flogging his en or lending his engineers um, leasing his engineers effectively out to the teams that are running marches so I was um, sent out to be race engineer True Sports for Bobby Rahal for the 84 IndyCar season. And that was another huge learning curve. Um, IndyCars, I think, a very interesting challenge because just like Formula One or other series, you have the, the road tracks and if you like the conventional street tracks, like, uh, sorry, race tracks like Silverstone and so forth, which are normally much faster corners than the, than the street tracks. But then in addition to that, you have the short ovals, the one mile ovals, and then the two and a half mile super speedways. Um, and they require very different skills, both of the driver and of the race engineer. 
particularly kind of the first test at Phoenix Short Oval, which was the first test I went to with Bobby and, and True Sports. Um, the car was sitting there and it kind of looks as if the accidents happened already. You know, every single wheel's at a different camber angle. The car's tilted, which means it's kind of sitting left hand down. Nothing square. And um, it's from, an air, from a race engineering perspective, it's actually a very interesting channel. Uh, sorry, challenge. Because particularly super speedways like Indianapolis, all four corners are within a few miles an hour, the same speed. So if the driver comes in and says it's understeering on a on a race on a normal street track or race track I should say, then you know you've got a variety of tools that you might choose. You might soften the front anti-roll bar. You might um, increase the front wing. Other changes. On the ovals, you have a plethora of changes you can make because you only have to worry about turning left, and there's there's no kind of range of corner speeds to to give you more of a clear of what you should do. There's no kind of braking entry because it's more or less a constant speed. So trying to understand how you should actually adjust the car when you don't have the normal clues, if you like, is, is an interesting challenge. And I've found it absolutely fascinating doing that. But I think, sorry, I've, got, I've gone off piece. I do apologise. In terms of your original question, Bobby, I think I was very young. Um, Bobby was a much more experienced driver, hence I actually grew a beard at that time because all the drivers I was race engineering were quite a lot older than me, so I tried to make <laughs> myself look older, then shaved it off, and now I'm trying to make myself look younger, but there we go. Um, he, he, I don't know, for whatever reason, we kind of bonded as a chemistry between race engineer and driver, where he could report on the car, I could translate what he was saying into, if you like, an engineering solution. He would then go off and drive it and would trust me to come up with a, hopefully a, a step forwards. And so we, we just developed a really strong relationship. Plus I think one of the things that happened, helped a lot with Indy or the IndyCar series, is the teams are very small. Um, we very often traveled together in these sort of effectively minibuses from circuit to circuit. Um, so you're on the road, if you like it, literally. Uh, we would very often eat dinner together. So, you know, come Friday evening, Bobby and I would sit down and have dinner and inevitably, of course, discuss the car and, and the problems. And sometimes from that, I would then go back into the circuit or get into the circuit early the next day to, to get the setup changed again from what I thought should be done on prior to the dinner. So I think all those things helped develop. And it's interesting if you ask me which two drivers do I feel I developed the best race engineering connection with, I'd probably say Bobby Rahal and Mario Andretti, both obviously IndyCar drivers. And is, is that partly the fact that in Formula One, there is more separation? I mean, because teams don't, I mean, it's not like the 60s and 70s where teams travelled around as units and you didn't have the same integration of an evening, for example. Do you think that's actually played a part in the fact that you didn't have that relationship with any of your Grand Prix drivers? I think it's it's partly that. I mean, um, when I got into Formula 1, it was Ivan Capelli and Richard Guzman. And so part of it, of course, is you've gone from a one-car team to a two-car team. Um, all the IndyCar teams I work for are one-car teams. Uh, I think... Even for whatever reason, and Mauricio, I never developed that relationship. 
Um, probably the next time really was da Damon Hill um, at Williams where in 96 after his race engineer had left for McLaren I ended up race engineering for that season and that was became quite a close relationship but I think as the years go on for me two things have, or several things have happened I've kind of ended up not just being a race or not being a race engineer at the, at the weekends because unfortunately quite a few other things to do um, and the teams have got much bigger so that does tend to make it a bit more impersonal and finally nowadays there's so much data to look through that typically on a Friday night we just don't leave the circuit until <coughs> way past dinner time so we, we grab a quick bite at the circuit and then um, get back to it and then and then finally peel off for the hotel room by the time you get to Saturday, it's all under the part Fermo regulations. It's all done and dusted. You can't change the Plus car you do, anymore. I mean, you don't need the driver to talk to you as much anyway, because Dell or Hewlett Packard talks to you anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. I mean, uh, you're right. All, all the data we record tells you a lot of about what the car does, but it's only the driver that can tell you why he's it's doing it. So. And drivers are incredibly intuitive beasts, so they, if, if a car has a handling deficiency, for instance, if it has a very nervous entry where as he's braking and turning into the corner, the rear wants to come round, then what he will do is he will take a much shallower entry so that he's not turning as much as he's braking, um, which will cover that aspect. But the result will be that then he's got too much turning to do when he gets to the apex of the corner. And so he will come in and say it's understeering. Mika Hakkinen is one of the worst for that <laughs> until he figured it out. So, <laughs> it, But if you looked at the data, it will simply say yeah. the car's understeering because the driver's masked it. Yeah. And so you, do, you have to marry the two. And I do actually enjoy that side of it. And that's something that has changed since the 80s and even the very early 90s where now you can marry what the driver's saying with what the data's telling you and then try and kind of be in mindful and intelligent in actually what's really happening. Just just rewinding briefly to 96, so you developed a very close relationship with Damon that season. So how did you feel when the, the bombshell dropped at Hockenheim? Or you might well have been in the loop by that, I don't know, but when the news broke that, um, that uh, Damon was being pitched? Uh, I was well I didn't know about it until after Damon did <laughs> when I read about it in the newspaper I think or Damon came in with a foul scowl, scowl on his face um, that was you know F Williams was a, a great team to work for um, Frank and Patrick were both Frank Williams and Patrick Head were, were both treated me extremely well um, and, and Patrick gave me a lot of uh, leeway to get on with the design of the car whilst he ran the engineering functions of the car uh, of the team um, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there but what you have to remember about Williams it is always Frank and Patrick's hobby shop and not in any malicious way they it was run by those two having having lunch together um, and they kind of when it came to consultation, you know, by then, by 96, I felt having, I think we won three or four championships by then. Um, I did feel, and, and they both promised that I should be, it should be a kind of three party. I should be inv involved in the decision making 
process, even if ultimately it was going to be their call. Um, and unfortunately, I think, as I say, not necessarily in a malicious way, they just kept forgetting they're, they've operated that way so many times that they just got on with it. And so Damon um, not having a drive for 96 was a huge shock. I mean, first of all, they had the shock of Jacques Villeneuve being chosen, which was um, kind of not what Frank and Patrick had agreed prior to Jack's test at Silverstone. Um, where they said if he, we agreed that if he was, I think David Coulthard had gone out and set a benchmark time, and we said, okay, if Jack's within one and a half seconds or something, I mean, it's quite a big band, then then we'll, we'll give him another test and consider it. I think he was in the event two seconds off, and was automatically given the drive by Frank <laughs> and Patrick, which I never understood without. So quite a lot of things were going on at the time. Um, and I did feel very, I thought it was, in, it was wrong for, for Damon to be treated that way. Um, and it was not wholly, but partly because of that, that I decided, okay, it's time probably for me to move on and join another team. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To, to rewind the clock a little bit to an, an earlier period at Williams, um, there's a lovely, it's about two pages in your book where you run through some of the tricks that Mansell used to play on Patrese. Um, please just remind us of them because everything from the, the initial way in all the way through to how he took a chicane, um, you know, so quickly, they were just brilliant. Well, I think, I mean, particularly if, if, um, if a driver's driving for a team where it looks like there's a good chance of winning the championship, then his main rival becomes his teammate. And I think Nigel's smart enough to realise very early in 92 that the, the 14B was a car that could deliver a championship and therefore what he needed to focus on was beating Ricardo. And um, Nigel was a great games player in an amusing way, I have to say. He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he didn't do it in an underhand way. Um, so the two tricks I particularly remember was um, one was that season there's still no kind of the car wasn't car weight it was car weight plus driver so didn't the um, the car weight was I can't remember about 500 kilos and then you added the driver on so but for some reason the FIA decided they would start measuring the driver's weight with the view to then the following season making the total weight including the driver not just the car so for the first 
weigh in at Kyle Army the first race, then um, Nigel had decided he he wanted to be prove that he was had been really fit and he is now lighter than Ricardo. So he dehydrated himself for twenty four hours. He took all the lining out of his helmet. He I think he took all the lining out of his shoes. He probably didn't wear any under underwear. I don't know. Went for the weigh in. Um, came in with a number. Ricardo had been training like mad through the whole winter. He'd been, he, he, he did look fully buffed, whereas Nigel still had that slight sort of burger-eating brummy look to him. Um, and uh, anyway, through Nigel's crash diet and <laughs> removal of bits of clothing, then he came in about half a kilo lighter. And it, that actually destroyed... Ricardo just couldn't believe it. And it's funny how little things like that can mess with the driver's head. And I think the Italian drivers, Ivan Capelli we mentioned earlier, and another Italian driver, they seem to be, as an observation, they can be a bit fragile in the head. Valentino Rossi clearly is a, is a huge exception to that, but some of the Formula One drivers I've worked with them um, have been a little bit fragile when it comes to that sort of stuff. So that seemed to phase um, uh, Ricardo a bit. And then much later in the season, we had this uh, business at Monza where uh, Nigel was a huge amount quicker through the chicanes, the, the first chicane and the um, first and second chicanes. And Ricardo just couldn't suss it. Anyway, Patrick went over to, Patrick Head went over to see Nigel and said, um, Nigel, how is it that you are so much faster than Ricardo? And Nigel says, ooh, it's very simple, really. What I do is when I get to the chicane, I turn the wheel, and I jam my knuckles like that so the steering wheel can't move and it can't kick back, you see. He said, ah, right. So he went over. Ricardo, what you need to do is jam your knuckles like this. So Ricardo went out, did a couple of laps, came back in <laughs> with, I think he, he, his gloves were, were blue sort of fabric in this area. And you could see blood oozing through, <laughs> completely skinned all his knuckles and had to wear plasters for the rest of the weekend. It was a complete wind-up on, on Nigel's part. But he, um, there was also the, the two debriefs as well. And there was obviously the kind of the, the debrief with Ricardo's side of the garage, but then they went off and had a separate debrief. Um, and I think he'd basically just said whatever would send Ricardo in the wrong direction in the big team debrief. Um, Yes, I mean he was not. That was naughty um, because it. It. I mean, it was obviously gamesmanship, but from a team point of view, it meant we weren't learning about the car, and indeed Montreal in particular that year, um, Nigel self sent himself off in the wrong direction, and because he went in the wrong direction, it actually caused Ricardo, who was following what he thought Nigel was doing go in the wrong direction as well because what, he, what Nigel was doing as you say was he was doing the first of all he was coming into the at the end of his run and adjusting the knobs in the cockpit which adjusted the uh, low speed and front high speed front ride height and the rear ride height on the active control system we had that year so he was adjusting that to a value which is completely different to what he's actually running so that when Ricardo's mechanic uh, and race engineer would look over and write down the knobs they're in completely different settings. And of course, Nigel's own race engineer was also writing down how he left it. They knew, nobody else in the, in the crew did. Um, so those shenanigans were going on. And I say, 
I understand why they did it, but it wasn't necessary because Nigel's already quick enough. He didn't need to do those games. And it did at times, from an engineering point of view, throw us as a team off in the wrong direction. But I, I think despite that side of him, I, for, just from reading the book, you have a certain amount of fondness for Nigel because you'd go yeah, out so. and you know there would be nothing left you know, within, within him in, in terms of lap yeah. time, whereas Alan Prost, I think, was obviously quite a... a a different character in terms of yeah. testing and things like yeah. that. No, I think Nigel, you know, he was the Italians from when he drove at Ferrari called him Il Leone, the lion, the lion. Um, and he was, he, he was a driver that when he was in the car, you could have painted his helmet white. You'd still know who was driving the car. He kind of really muscled the car around and embossed the car. And by and large, when he was in the car, you knew that that was going to be the time it was capable of that day. Whereas Alain Prost, the following year, could have hardly be a more extreme difference in the opposite direction. That Alan was, I suppose in many ways, perhaps it's a sign of self-confidence, he would, he would not worry about lap time and testing or practice at all. He would kind of do his own thing um, to the point you think, Christ, we're, you know, we're in trouble here. We're, we're just not quick enough. And then come qualifying, he would suddenly string it together and bang, there he was on pole, which I guess he knew what he was doing. But as I say, fr from the from the um, other side of the cockpit, it was it could be quite harrowing at times. Do you think not? Do you think history has been a little bit unfair on Nigel Mansell? Do you think his sort of his talents are overlooked? Yes, I do. I think he, in that active car, he was he was built for the active car um, because it was the control system had a lag in it, which meant that when you turned into the corner, into a corner, then the kind of the outside front would collapse a bit, um, giving quite a f strange feeling as as the mechanical balance, the sort of distribution between front and rear tires went peculiar, and then it would recover. Um, and off it would go around the corner. That strange feeling on turning, Ricardo, it always spooked him, so he could never keep his foot in, whereas Nigel just had the, the self-confidence and self-belief in his own car control, that he just kept his foot in it and, it, and it would go around. Plus his huge upper body strength, um, which meant that because in those days we didn't have power steering, he could he could muscle the car around in a way that Ricardo just didn't have the strength on the steering wheel. He, I think he he has been, he is underrated, um, and his contribution to the team, for me, from an engineering point of view, is also very good. He has this sort of image from the outside that he's you know a bit of a bit of a wide boy almost. But he was he was a clever chap in the cockpit. Um, we have loads of readers' questions, um, and I wanted to go on to talk about time at McLaren. Um, but there's there's quite a nice one here that uh, there's sort of two parts to this question. I'll I'll read it out in its entirety. It's from Adrian King. Um, but let's answer the second part first, and we'll we'll go back to the first part. Um, he's about to redecorate his house, and he's wondering whether duck egg blue is a good choice. Um, <laughs> we'll come back to that one. Um, if you could have ten minutes with Colin Chapman, what would you ask him? I guess oh, that's an interesting one. Nobody's ever asked me that one before. Um, probably, how does he go? How did he approach his work? What 
what gave him the inspiration for some of his ideas. Having had an idea, what was his approach to developing it? And how do you put the discipline into when you say, actually, you know what, this idea is not going to work, it's time to, to ditch it and move on to something else? Because those are the kind of the problems I find myself facing, if you like, on a routine basis. Um, and I'm sure everybody has a different way of dealing it because sometimes actually coming up with the ideas isn't is the easy bit. It's critiquing them and developing them into something that will work. Before we get on to the uh, critical matter of duck egg blue, the um, I mean, just weird, I mean, do you are, are your ideas? Do they just sort of kind of pop up left field in the middle of the night? I mean, where, or is, or is it is it, is it just a, a sort of methodical process by where you, you sit down and make a few notes and then you, you create the idea. I mean, does it, or is it just literally something that pops into your head? I'd say hmm, most of the time it's kind of consider looking at a problem, not having a solution to it, kind of but it absorbs into your self-consciousness. Here's a problem, what do I do about it? And sometimes, you know, it'll be get up, go for a coffee, go for a walk, come back and you'll have a bit of inspiration just from turning your mind off and doing something mundane. Um, what I find quite often is when I'm driving, I kind of it, my mind drifts off and I'm thinking about the car to the point of, you know, usual favourite, miss the motorway junction, <laughs> etc. A number of times I've done that. Um, other times... It's probably won you a couple of world championships, though, hasn't it? <laughs> been missing motorway junctions. Yeah, it's put like, yeah, <laughs> a fair bit on my journey time, but there we go. Uh, it's a great excuse for being late for work. Um, I mean, uh, other times it will be looking at things. So I remember, for instance, an internal flight on in the Caribbean from Barbados to some little island, I can't remember the name. I was looking out the window and the solution the, the propeller aircraft had for its engine intake kind of looked the perfect solution when reapplied to the problems we were having with the airbox intake on the 96 car. Um, and so based on that, I kind of drew a completely ro different roll hoop intake for the 97 car, which proved to be a good solution, I think, has now come, become the universal solution along the grid. So inspiration can, I think if you, the key thing is to try and keep your mind open and, and working almost subconsciously. And then it seems to fit into place. Um, well, we should we should return to Duck Egg Blue because it brings us nicely on to McLaren. Um, I think sort of the, the listeners will probably need uh, a small explanation um, in the answer to, for, to Adrian King's question. Yes, there is a history to that, which was um, when I joined. I, I started at McLaren on the first of August, which um, is very late in a design period. Normally, kind of the car would be largely defined by the first of August. We also, that was 97, and we had a very big regulation change for the 98 season. So it's kind of doubly on the back foot, because um, I couldn't necessarily simply bring my memory of what the Williams car looked like, because it wouldn't have been appropriate with the regulation change. So the bottom line was, um, as soon as I started, then I was working crazy hours trying to catch up, um, and also, of course, understand the research that had been to that point to have been done by the McLaren, the guys at McLaren up to that point and try and 
best blend, if you like, my thoughts and ideas with with the, their results to that to that date. And the office I was given was John Barnard's old old office, which was uh, floor to ceiling mahogany panelling, with black window frames, a mahogany desk, and a dark brown carpet. So, kind of when you're working to past midnight, it is. Kind of felt <laughs> it was about time to do that, really. <laughs> so Ron insisted I come to the um, to the Hungary race, which was about two weeks after I started. So just before I left, I said to the to the um, uh, factory manager, "Look, here's a, here's a paint chart. Can you paint the the walls that colour, please? Can you put a tan coloured carpet in and put a light? Oh, the seat, my chair was black as well. Put a lighter." Tan-coloured chair, and I'll do something brighten it up. So he said, "Okay." Um, anyway, I came back in on the Monday morning after Hungary, and it was it was you know the whole all the walls were duck egg blue. It was just so much lighter and kind of had a nicer, softer feel. And to the point that when I looked out of my door onto the main um, engineering office, which was all kind of in Ron's style. Uh, shades of grey, then it kind of looked like almost as if I was looking at one of those sort of old postcards where I was looking at the black and white, but my bit had been coloured in. <laughs> it's it a very funny feeling. Anyway, Ron came in that evening about kind of six or seven o'clock to see how I was getting on. And bearing in mind, Ron doesn't like anything happening that he doesn't know about. He's he's quite a bit of a control freak in that sense. Anyway, came in and. Um, looked through my door and he kind of went and he started gulping <laughs> like a goldfish sort of. and meanwhile his face went bright red Christ he's going to have a heart attack or something <laughs> and after what probably was 30 seconds but seemed like about two minutes he finally spun on his heels and walked out <laughs> and I think the poor old factory manager had a huge strip torn off him um Apparently he went back to, I only found out years later that he went back to see his wife, Lisa, um, and was absolutely apoplectic about the whole thing. I think <laughs> the honeymoon period was nearly <laughs> over after two weeks for that little prank. Um, it, it, keeping on the subject of, of Ron Dennis, um, despite working there for you know, nearly a decade and winning, uh, having a 50% win rate, um, he then tried to cut your salary, didn't he? Which I think was, that was sort of the beginning of the end, wasn't it, with, with McLaren? Well, it was, yes, it was, I think it was probably slightly before that, where um, we'd had, we'd, we'd won the champ, both drivers and constructors in 98, uh, won the drivers in 99 and almost won the constructors, just had a, a bit of bad luck and so forth and that. And then in 2000, we were still, we were again leading the drivers with about two races to go and we had an engine failure and that kind of put us out. So we'd, we'd had a decent run and quite a lot of race wins in that time. Um, so come, I guess it must have been early 2001 when it, my contract was getting to the point where it was close to expiring. Yes, it must have been about February, March 2001, um, it was about four months ago on my contract, ne renegotiations started. Now about the same t period, um, 
Ron invited Martin Whitmarsh, who was the uh, um, managing director, and myself down to his house in the south of France. And there in the swimming pool, the three of us, uh, Ron said, I'd like to you two to take the keys to McLaren when I retire. Um, but I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to tell, decide when I'm going to retire at the moment. It will be at some point, but I don't know when. And until then, um, I kind of want you to swear undying loyalty to McLaren and and uh, kind of well, that was a sales pitch, really. And uh, Ron said, uh, "Sorry, Martin said, okay, absolutely." And I said, "Well, no, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid I'm." I really enjoy working here, but I'm not prepared to do that with no defined timescale. And kind of that, Ron expected undying or unquestioning loyalty. And um, when I didn't show that, I think that was maybe a little, it definitely changed the relationship. And it was shortly after that we then got into these these, um, contract negotiations where um, I'd had a pretty substantial joining fee when I first started at McLaren, plus a fairly good championship bonus. Um, and so when, he, when renegotiations happened, I expected to at least be earning what I'd le- earned in the, in the previous three years or so. And Ron instead came in with an offer which was much lower, and in the end I kept rejecting it. Um, and I was kind of a bit upset about it in truth because it just, I felt as if I was kind of being taken advantage of. Uh, anyway, Bobby Rahal, who, who the driver from IndyCar, by then had um, become team principal at Jaguar. And he approached me and said, what would it take you to, um, what would it take to get you to join Jaguar? So we had various discussions. Um, initially just about the job and the direction and Jaguar's aspirations, which was Ford back, so effectively Ford's aspirations, and their their budgets for running the team and so forth. Um, and then finally, of course, it turned around to my salary. And I've, I can honestly say I've never moved teams for salary. In fact, sometimes I've moved teams for a drop in salary because I felt it's, it's the career direction that I wanted to take. But what Bobby was, or Jaguar offering was pretty, attract, very attractive compared to what I had been on at McLaren. And then when compared to Ron's reduced offer for me to continue, was was kind of a very different level of offer. Um, so I debated it and, and so on and so forth um, with my wife at the time, Marigold. And... Uh, it did look attractive. I, I liked Bobby, and the working relationship, or the sorry, the, the relationship—not just the working relationship between, if you like, the chief engineer and the whatever adjectives you want to use, team principal, which in this case was Bobby. Um, I think is a very important one. Uh, Martin Whitmarsh and I sort of had had that a very good. Um, relationship at McLaren but as I say it was starting to turn a bit didn't the honeymoon period was certainly over um, and I thought okay well you know to work with Bobby I got on 
tremendously with him when we in my race engineering days with him as a driver. I know him very well. This could work. Um, and so I was really right on the point of, of, of um, joining them. And I will be honest, I did actually sign a kind of letter of intention to, that I would join. Then went to see Ron and said, look, I'm sorry, I'm, this is what's happening. I'm going, to, I'm going to join Jaguar and my contract expires. Um, I then took the kids off to <laughs> see my, The Mummy Returns at Woking Cinema. <laughs> and uh, when I came out, my phone had was just got about 100 messages on it from everybody, um, going mainly Ron and going nuts. So when I got home, Ron was there with his wife, Lisa, ready to ambush me at the gates. I went inside and... Um, Ron and Lisa are a very persuasive couple when they when they get going and uh, kind of did a, a good job of kind of pointing out what was actually correct in the end. That whilst Bobby was team principal at the time, there was other things going on underneath with Nicky Lauder coming in. There was a power struggle between Nicky and Bobby, um, et cetera, et cetera, and persuaded me that actually I should stay and offered me the same salary as, as, as Jaguar had and also offered me that if I wasn't enjoying it after a couple of years then I could stop doing the Formula 1 bit and do McLaren would enter America's Cup. Um, so I stayed at McLaren um, and as, it's, as I say in, in truth he turned, Ron turned out to be right because after that Jaguar went through this revolving door policy where uh, Bobby only lasted about another six or nine months after that and then they got through about I think they got through a team principal year after that and it was a very kind of Ford I think became very desperate didn't know what to do and just kept putting new people after, no, after new person in. but you d you did I suppose in a sense eventually join that team when it was when it was Red Bull and I you know we've we, I must get on to readers questions um, but just a sort of a very Quick question for you too, because we haven't talked at all about Red Bull four back-to-back -back World Championships. Um, there's an interesting bit in your book about um, Helmut Marko, and obviously the post-collision uh, in in Istanbul, he very much jumped out in defence of Vettel. I think having not really seen the footage or certainly not considered what he was saying, but he also um, lent into Mark's cockpit just before the Valencian race. Um, and so, excuse, I've, uh, excuse the language we said, Mark, you're always in Valencia. Is today going to be any different? Um, was he quite a difficult character, or is, is he a quite difficult character to have in the team when you've got someone like Vettel, who he's brought up from nothing, and then you've got someone else like Mark? Is it, that must be quite difficult to balance to strike with someone like that. Well, I think there's two things about Helmers, and I think it's, it's, a, it's, it seems to be, a, as far as I can see, an Austrian thing. It's just a slight cultural difference that they're tend to be very blunt. We English are kind of a bit more uh, softer about the way we say things to people, whereas the Austrians very much say what they feel. So as far as Helmut was concerned, when he lent in the cockpit in Valencia, he was just stating a fact. <laughs> the fact that it was not the best motivational thing to say to a driver when he's about to start a race is completely lost on Helmut. Um, Helmut has offers a huge amount and does bring a lot to the team. Um, but 
he also has his young driver program. And so, of course, for Helmut, if a driver comes through the young driver program, makes it to Formula One, and then turns out to be very good, that's a real feather in his cap. And Sebastian Vettel was really the first product of that young driver program that went on to be a proper star. Um, others got to Formula One, but weren't really top draw. So, whereas Mark has been a very successful driver before moving to Red Bull and had not ever been past the Red Bull Junior program. So, it, it is kind of understandable that Helmut had a, a bias towards Sebastian. He was probably a bit obvious and diverse in the way he displayed that, let's say. Um, and it's it's back to this thing of mind games. And I think for Mark, the, the truth is that Helmut's kind of biased towards Sebastian. In terms of the preparation of the car, the level of engineering that went into the car, um, the support that Mark got from uh, myself, etc., was absolutely identical between the drivers. Um, if anything, when it came to that 2010 championship, I would have loved to have seen Mark win it because I felt having been through the less good years of 2007 and eight with us and stuck with us and given us a, a lot of support and a lot of feedback in helping to develop the car, to have won the championship in 10 would have been a very good reward, a just reward for him. Um, but unfortunately, I think, uh, unfortunately, but understandably, Mark, with his girlfriend Anne, started to become a bit... They spent too long worrying about that Helmut was favouring Sebastian side, or paying too much attention to Sebastian's side of the garage. And that, I think, in terms of his driving, started to affect him a little bit. Because after all, drivers are sportsmen, and we're, we're all... What goes on up here is is all part of it. Um, we we must sorry, someone. I was going to jump in. We we must ask some of these readers' questions. Um, there's some really great ones here, and I, I don't think we're going to get through the sort of several hundred that we have. <laughs> um, and you probably want to have dinner at some point. Um, there's a there's a nice one here that uh, from Peter Spears. Um, he says, as a keen motorbike rider, have you ever been tempted to move into MotoGP? Uh, John Barnard worked with Kenny Roberts' team, and so that he considered the aero potential fascinating and largely untapped. Yeah, no, MotoGP is, is, I think, outside of Formula One, what other areas of kind of man and machine, big budget man and machine is there? And the answer is Le Mans, um, Motor GP and America's Cup is probably in truth about it. Uh, Motor GP, obviously, not obviously, but I didn't have a car until I was about 22, 23. I just had motorbikes through my teens. Um, so I have a great love of motorbikes. It's, and then quite a few people, John Barnard's one, but quite a few other people from the Formula One paddock have, have ended up in Motor GP. Um, it's a very different challenge, for sure. And I think it's it's a challenge that one should definitely shouldn't underestimate. So if I was going to divert to MotoGP, it would have to be as a full-time thing. It's not something I think 
you could really do as a consultant. And it, it, that's kind of never quite got to the top of my list. Um, and I still enjoy Formula One, and I, I wanted to design a road car, and I'd like to get him, which is the Aston Martin Valkyrie project. And then the one thing I would like to try to achieve now, if it's possible, is if, if we are able to race the Aston at Le Mans, then um, to get a win at Le Mans and hence an engineering triple crown of Monaco, Indy and Le Mans would be something that would be very satisfying. Um, there's, uh, there's another one here about um, the, the three technical directors um, who you consider as your, your biggest rivals. Um, they can be retired or still active. The, the st I think it'd be nice to sort of open it up to technical directors, but also engineers as well and designers. Um, who do you who do you see or have seen as really your? You, know, you look at them and think, yeah, I got to watch what they're doing. I think from the previous era before I got into motor racing, really, or certainly it was right at the end of the tail end of their careers, then it would have to be Colin Chapman and Mauricio, uh, sorry, Mario Figari from uh, Ferrari. And I think almost most of all, and very almost unknown, Jim Hall of Chaparral, um, who was responsible for a lot of the innovations that we now see in motor racing, or certainly developing them to the point they're on racing cars. Um, if you like, of, of the... Well, Gordon Murray is, in truth, pretty much out of Formula One by the time I got into it. So Gordon Murray in the same category. Um, Patrick Head, of course, uh, who I worked with at Williams, very pragmatic engineer. Um, and then as I think Rory Byrne probably is the one I would single out as not being terribly well known, but in the years where Rory was at Benetton and then Ferrari, I would, I would view much of that Benetton and Ferrari success as being Rory's work and he, he's probably the engineer most of the ones I know that I have the most respect for. Um, I've, I've got sort of one more question here and then Simon I'll, I'll throw to you for a, for a final question. Um, there's, in your book you say, I'd love to design a car aimed at the general road user, one that's affordable and economical, something that has genuinely, a genuinely small carbon footprint. You mentioned Gordon Murray there. Um, a period in F1, followed by building a hypercar or a supercar, and then building a car with a small carbon footprint. There's, there's a quite a lot of um, similarities with, with Gordon's career as well. Uh, a, sort of tell me a bit more about um, your, your next steps, because obviously you've got the Valkyrie, maybe Le Mans, um, but also about whether that was any conscious decision to kind of mirror what, what Gordon's done. <laughs> uh, well, conscious decision with Gordon, no, abs no it's not. I mean, I've, I know Gordon quite well um, and as I say got a great deal of respect for him so maybe it's it's just kind of what older Formula 1 people do I don't know um, I think in my case sport my, my father had a series of sports cars starting with Mini Cooper S's then uh, Lotus Alans in particular and he used to tinker around and modify them quite a lot and it was partly a result of his interest in those that I think kind of rubbed off into my interest in cars and, and, and motor racing. So road cars have always been a kind of quiet passion um, and something I always 
really from probably a very young age always wanted to have a go at designing a road car um but of course my my motor racing career became the kind of dominant thing um but a few years ago i thought right it's time to step back a little bit from formula one try and give more space for the the very talented group of engineers also at red bull um and, and use that time to start getting involved in a road car and that's exactly what we were able to do um but it's it's a very specialized car you know it's it's a very expensive car only a lucky f- i shouldn't say a lucky few only a few people have that sort of wealth to be able to afford it and obviously you can then discuss its value or true merit in terms of furthering mankind or whatever um so yes i think perhaps because my father always loved small cars with the with the mini coopers and the and the lotus Alans, which nowadays of course look tiny then trying to do something which is trying to find a, a slightly new avenue to small light efficient cars would be a, a challenge that I may may find a route to or, or not it's not immediately obvious to me how you do that Gordon's obviously tried to do it by going off and setting up his own company but that's not something that really interests me I, I enjoy engineering I don't and design I don't enjoy kind of trying to run companies and be a manager that's not me at all so there's a few ideas it may or may not happen um, and I, I think the automotive industry at the moment is clearly in a, a lot of turmoil it nobody knows what is the future direction is it is it going to be electric is it going to be hybrids is it going to be hydrogen which seems to me to be the much more logical approach rather than pure electric the truth is nobody knows to sign off uh, one of the ways you relax when you're not in the maelstrom of formula one paddock is to go and race things such as a lotus 49 i mean is is Historic racing, I mean, you've had a GT40, you've had an E-Type, you've, I think you've still got the 49, haven't you? Is that relaxation or do you do you tackle the driving with the same kind of commitment that you tackle the engineering? I think some of my early accidents would probably say that I tackled that, tackled that with a bit too much commitment. But um. I, I seem to remember for a Motorsport magazine feature, um, we got you into the Leighton House and Christian Horner was heard on the on the pit wall saying, oh, Jesus, as he, as he went into cops or wherever it was. Yeah, um, yeah, I knew, I know what it's meant to be able to do. Uh, it's, it's been relaxation and probably it's that frustrated kid that went karting when I was kind of 14, 15. Uh, never, never did any good. Obviously, I'll try and blame it on the equipment. And in truth, the my interest, part of my interest, or my main interest actually became modifying the cart to try and make it go faster more than driving it. But there's probably, like mo- most people in motor racing, there's still that frustrated racing driver in there. And so doing a bit of racing bit, classic cars, or, or indeed um, modern cars with a friend, Joe Macari, we've did quite a few races in a Ferrari 430, including the one, um, has been... I suppose it's it's been a hobby, and I you might say that's a busman's holiday, but to me it's completely different because kind of 
if you like, amateur racing as a driver is completely different to um, attempting to be a professional engineer in, in motor racing. Um, Adrian, it has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful dinner tonight. Um, Simon, thank you very much. And thank, thank you to you. Alan, who's been recording. Uh, if you haven't read it already, please go and buy Adrian's book. It is absolutely brilliant. Um, it burnt my back because I found it so interesting <laughs> when I was on holiday in the sun. Uh, and there's so much that we haven't covered today uh, that is in that book. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. And we'll see you next time. Thanks thank very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.